Well, good morning. It's good to be with you, and um, it is good that Sam has not, uh, by mistake, introduced me as the guest preacher in any of the services, because this is our home, and it feels very good to be back home, and we, we just want to say thank you so much. Um, uh, in August, it will be 30 years that Ellen and I have been a part of this family, and even though we live overseas and we come back now and then, and, and most of you, honestly, as I'm looking around, I'm like, I don't know most of the people in the church. Is this still, when we walk in here, feels like our home. This is our church family, and we're so grateful for the way that you care for us, pray for us. Um, we really feel that. And we're excited to be back for a year to renew some old friendships and to start some new ones. And um, we will have some travel. We'll kind of be in and out, but we're really hoping to, to be a part of you and and be around more. So hopefully you'll, you'll get enough time to see us. We'd love to get to know you a bit. So it's nice to be home. Well, I'm going to jump in. Um, you have maybe made a mistake by coming to the last service because I'm used to preaching in Asia where there's no time constraints. And I'm thinking last service, there's no time constraints. But I will try to do my best to keep it to the half hour that has been allotted. So we're going to jump in to uh, our message this morning. And uh, we're going to be looking at 1 John. So if you want to turn there, you can. But 1 John chapter 2, uh, starting in verse 28 through chapter 3, verse 3. I'm going to start us off just by reading the passage. And now... Little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, then you also may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. What we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we shall see Him as He truly is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. So the book of 1 John, as, as you may know, was written by the Apostle John, who was one of Jesus' 12 disciples, and he also wrote the Gospel of John, which is one of the four accounts we have of Jesus' life in the Bible. This letter, 1 John, was written at the very end of his life. He's, he's an old man at this point, and he's writing a letter to the church, to, to the believers, to those under his care. And throughout the book, he has this great affection for those that he's writing. And, and we see that in the beginning as he writes, little children. This isn't condescension. This isn't like saying, pejoratively saying little children. This is him with great affection as an old elder in the church, wise, having walked with Jesus for years, saying, listen to me. I love you. Listen to what I have to bring to you. You are so, um, so much in my heart Little children, little children, come. He, later he says, beloved, beloved, listen to me. And so we come and we listen to this, this elder of the church with great affection for us. And we, we say, okay, 
So what is it, John? What do you want to say to us? And he says, abide in him. Abide in Jesus. And abiding in Jesus is a central theme for John. Um, It is really the core of of what he understands it to be, to be a follower of Jesus, to know Jesus, to love Jesus. He talks about abiding. What does that mean? Well, I think really, John, what he's talking about is this idea of living in the presence of God, really understanding who he is and living in in such a way that that we hear his voice and we, we are in tune with the Holy Spirit in such a way that it infuses all of our life. And he not only talks about it here, but in John chapter 15, in the Gospel of John, he actually gives Jesus' teaching on abiding. And Jesus tells us that not only is abiding necessary, but it brings these, these wonderful benefits in our life. It brings much fruit. In fact, Jesus says that without me, you can do nothing. Without abiding in Christ, absolutely nothing for eternity is available. I once heard a, uh, a speaker, uh, a wonderful Indian uncle, who said, what can we do without, without Christ? And we all said, nothing. And he said, unfortunately, far too much. Unfortunately, far too much. But nothing for eternity can be done without him. But there's much fruit if we abide. Joy is connected to abiding. Jesus said, This is the reason I'm telling you about abiding because I want my joy to be in you and I want your joy to be full, to be complete, to be overflowing. Joy and abiding are connected. Answered prayer is connected. Jesus said that if we abide in him and his words abide in us, we can ask anything and the Father will do it. Now that seems crazy in my prayer life. But it's this idea of being so connected to Jesus that you know his will and what's happening in each and every moment. And we can be confident to go before our Lord. Well, in 1 John, he gives us one more reason, one more result of abiding. And he says this, Abide in Jesus so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back from him in shame. When he comes, this idea that Jesus is coming again, and John is saying, when he comes again, I don't want you to shrink back. I don't want you to be ashamed. And this is an interesting idea because he's writing to believers. He's not writing to the unbelievers, he's writing to believers, and he's saying, I don't want you to be ashamed. He's not saying that we're going to shrink back in fear of punishment. That's been dealt with on the cross, we have been forgiven. We don't have to worry about punishment, but he does say, I don't want you to be ashamed. Now, living overseas for uh, over 20 years now, um, we've had the chance to live and and be a part of cultures that have very different lenses than, than ours does in the West, in America. And oftentimes, the way they view the world... Um, is actually much more similar to the biblical authors and the cultures they came from. And so this whole idea of honor and shame that is talked about in the Bible that oftentimes we read, we're not really sure we get it. Um, This is very, very much the, the, the culture that we swim in in South Asia. As Americans, we, we tend to think about um, guilt and innocence. That's, that's kind of the lens that we look at. And we look at the gospel through that. And rightly so. We've broken God's law. So we deserve to be punished. Uh, We deserve eternal punishment. But God came and sent his own son to die for us, that we could be saved. We could be justified. 
that, that punishment, that guilt is gone forever. We are forgiven. And that is the heart of the gospel. But there's more. And it's good news that there's more. Because we've not only broken God's law, we've dishonored him. We've been disloyal to him. And when you, are dishon- when you dishonor someone and are disloyal to them, you bring shame upon them and upon you. And so now we have this shame upon us as well. And while we are forgiven, we have to figure out what to do with this shame. Now, if you don't believe me, if you think, what are you talking about here? Okay, well, how many of you have ever done something wrong? You've known it. Perhaps, perhaps you've had to pay a penalty for it. Maybe there was a punishment that came, came with what was wrong. Perhaps you've been forgiven. Maybe that's been done and over with, and it's been paid for, and you've been forgiven by someone else. But years later, there's this lingering shame over it. You see, the gospel, the gospel is about more than just guilt and innocence. It's certainly not about less, but the good news is that it is about more. Because God not only wants to just open the door to a relationship with him, he doesn't want us just to interact with him as the judge who's declared us justified and not guilty. He wants us to come fully with confidence in his presence as his, our loving father. Where we don't have to be ashamed. And this is what, what John is talking about. And, and, and he's saying there's, there's more here that's going on. And, and so even though you've been forgiven and you don't have to worry about punishment when Jesus comes back, I also don't want you to be ashamed. I want you to be first in line to go see him. I don't want you to be hanging back wondering about what might happen. I want you to be so eager and confident that you're going to be right there at the front. So how do we do this? How do we experience his presence as we abide and his love in our lives in a way that frees us from shame? Well, John would say, abide. Abide. And then he he unpacks two particular things in these verses that will help us to abide together. So we're going to look at those. The first is this. He calls us to live honorable lives in community. Look at verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. And then in chapter 3, verse 3, he goes on to say, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So John says, abide in Jesus so you won't be ashamed. And then he, he kind of bookends the rest of what he wants to tell us with two very similar ideas, that we should practice righteousness and we should pursue holiness. And at first, of course, that makes sense, right? Well, of course, if I don't want shame in my life, then I should just do good. I should do things that I won't be ashamed of and that I won't have shame. But that's not what John is saying. John is saying Jesus is so good You don't have to worry about shame. It's not that I have to work in such a way to be good and to be unashamed. It's that I can love Jesus so much and see what he's done in my life that I want to be like him. It's it's not working for honor. It's living out a life with Jesus that results in righteousness, that pursues holiness. Why? 
Not because I don't want to be afraid of shame, because I love him. But we are talking about shame. And so this idea of practicing righteousness and pursuing holiness, we have to talk about it in relationship with one another. And this is another wonderful thing that has been good for us living overseas. We are a very individualistic culture in America. You can pull up your bootstraps and make it happen, right? It can be all you. You can be anything you want to be. Well, we, we, we do need other people. Let me, if you haven't figured that out yet, it's true. We need one another. And the interesting thing about shame is that it always, always involves community. You see, guilt, guilt goes this way. If I, if I have done something wrong, right, guilt is, sorry, guilt is doing something wrong and I know it. Shame is I've done something wrong and you know it. Or you might find out about it. Shame is always in context of relationship. And if we are going to heal shame, it has to be in the context of revealing it to one another. Now, at this point, I hope you're getting a little uncomfortable because most of us don't believe this. Most of us think we can handle our sin on our own. Thank you very much. I don't need to share my dirty laundry with you. I definitely don't want to hear yours. And we can just all go to Jesus and be okay. Well, how many of us have tried that? And how many of us have found that it didn't work? And how many of us, instead of finding freedom, have just found new ways to hide our sins so we don't have to have shame? If you're really tracking with me, you should have a little bit of a pit in your stomach. Because what this means is we have to open up the places of sin in our lives to one another. That pit in your stomach, that's shame. And John is saying, I don't want you to have that. Jesus doesn't want you to have that. A beautiful example of dealing with shame comes in the story of the prodigal son. And one of the things you have to learn, and it's taken a lot of time for us to learn these things about honor and shame and guilt and innocence, but, but with shame, the, the answer isn't forgiveness. That's the answer for guilt, with shame, the answer is honor. With shame, the answer is restoration. So the prodigal son story, you may remember Jesus telling the story about a younger son who, who takes all of his inheritance, he runs away, he spends all the money, he becomes destitute and thinks, I'm going to go back and I'm going to beg my father to forgive me and take me back as a servant. Now, in that culture and in that day, if the father would have taken him back as a servant, that would have been an incredible act of forgiveness. I mean, lavish, amazing. But that's not what the father did, did he? He didn't just forgive his son and receive him as a servant. No, he publicly embraced his son. He put a robe on him. He put a ring on his finger. He put sandals on his feet. And then he holds a party for everyone. Why? To communicate that this is my son who has come and he's restored in community. He is honored. He is a part of us. He is no servant. He hasn't just been forgiven. He has been honored and restored. And that is what God has done for you. That is what God has done 
for us. Jason Georges, who writes on honor and shame, says, says this, while ultimate honor comes from God, participation in God's family on earth is where honor is remade, affirmed, and expressed. The church affirms people's honor. Now listen to this. The church functions as a family whose gracious welcome frees people to unmask their shame. Are you part of a family that has such a gracious welcome that we can unmask our shame and find healing? Because if that happens in this church, if that happens amongst us in our body, we will change the world because there is nowhere else, there is nowhere else to go to get rid of shame. And it is only found in the family of Jesus. But we can heal it and we can change the world. I really believe that. I'm not being, I'm not, yeah. We can change the world by how we do this together. We can talk more about that later if you want to. John 17, I'm going to give you an example here. Um, in John 17, Jesus prays for those who are going to follow him and, and for those who would hear the message and, and believe in him, and, and that includes us. And at one point in the prayer, he says, I have given them the glory that the Father gave me so that they may be one as the Father and I are one. So he's given us his glory. Now, interestingly, the Greek word that is most often translated as glory in the New Testament has this underlying um, meaning of to be recognized or esteemed or to be honored. So Jesus is saying, okay, all the honor I've been given by the Father, all the glory I've been given, all that honor, I'm, I give it to you. Why? so that you can be one, so that I and you can be one, even as Jesus and the Father are one. He has put his own honor and glory upon us, lifting us up out of our shame. So, look around. Okay, every service this happened, most people don't think I'm serious. Look around. Look around at other people here in the room. What do you see? Do you see glory? Because that is what is there. That is what Jesus has placed upon you. If you don't see glory, we're missing what Jesus has given us. Now, I woke up this morning, and I have to be the first to say that I really didn't say, wow, that's glorious when I looked in the mirror. But that's the truth. Our first couple of years in India, we had a small apartment in Varanasi, and, um, and we had, on a, on a little trip, we had bought a Kashmiri carpet, and it was just beautiful. This, I really enjoy art, and it was this beautiful artistic carpet. Um, it was too nice to use on, on the floor, so we actually hung it up on our wall. And every morning, um, I would have my cup of coffee and my time with Jesus, and I would sit across from this carpet, and I really enjoy art, and I, I, I just really loved the beauty of this, of this rug that we hung on the wall. And one morning as I was sitting there, um, I noticed there's, there's four kind of sections to the carpet, and everything is symmetrical, so it's all balanced, it's all exactly the same, and I noticed in one of the sections that there was, there was a flaw. 
there, it wasn't symmetrical. And I was like, we could have gotten a discount. <laughs> and then I started looking, and, and I noticed in every single section, there's a mistake. There's one flaw. Well, later we learned that Kashmiri Muslims believe that only God is perfect. And so even in their artistry, they refuse to make anything perfect. So there's always a flaw found in what they do. But what do you think happened every time now I sat down in front of the rug with my cup of coffee? Well, where are those? Oh, yep, there it is. Yep, those, there's the flaws. And I stopped enjoying the glory of the rug. And this is what we do to each other. It's so easy to point out the flaws. It's so easy to identify the issues in each other's lives. And then we start to identify that person in that way. Instead of seeing the glory. The flaws are, are just these small pieces. The glory is what matters. It is, it is the big, and we don't sweep the flaws underneath the rug. We don't say sin is okay. We deal with it. But if I am dealing with you and you are dealing with me and our sin and our shame, and we're dealing with it with glory in mind, we deal with one another very differently than if all we're looking at is the flaws. If I am looking at you in your glory and I'm coming alongside you saying, hey, let's work on this together, it is entirely different than if you are the flaw that I see. We have to see the glory in one another. And then as we're doing that, the other thing that we need to do is to call out one another's glory. What do I mean by that? Well, we, we need to specifically be talking about it. I said this in the first service, Brianna. I, I loved the worship this morning. I love your voice. Um, there's glory in that. That's, that's the glory of Jesus. You see that? It's not just that she has a nice voice. It's the glory of Jesus that is leading us to worship him. I can't think of anything I would rather not do on a Sunday morning than be in the, chi in the children's ministry area. Praise God for the glory that exists in those workers down there. I mean it. Are we going to call out the glory or not? Because if we don't call out the glory then we will hide. Do you see that? If all you ever do is tell me my flaws, well, eventually I'm not going to show up anymore. I'm just going to hide because it's too shameful. But if there's an environment in this church, in this body, that calls that glory out and is all the time doing that and honoring one another, that when I have an issue and have shame, I will be able to bring it and bring it out to you, knowing that you've already seen and expressed and, and affirmed the glory. That has to happen. John tells us to live lives in community that are honorable, practicing righteousness, pursuing holiness, and we have to do it together, but we have to keep in mind the glory, the honor that we see that Jesus has given. Secondly, John tells us that we need to remember who we are. And the reason this is important is it doesn't matter how much we tell one another how great we are, and please don't let the glory descend into that, just, oh, you're so great. No, call out Jesus. I see Jesus in you. Brian, I've known you for 30 years, and I see Jesus in you every time I come back to, to Faithy Free. 
That's what we need to be doing. We see Jesus in one another. Call that out. Anyway, we can do that all we want, but in the end, it has to be God. It has to be Jesus who gives us our value. And, and John wants us to understand that as well. So let's look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. We are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Think about what God has done, what he has lavished on you, his love that you should be called and summoned and given a new name, brought into this family. And, and John goes on to say, well, but wait a second, don't look to the world. If you're looking to the world for affirmation and honor, they have a totally different system. They don't know you. They don't know Jesus. You look there, you will be disappointed. You will find nothing. We find it here. We find it in this community where it's based on Jesus. One of the things that has been um, really, really helpful for me um, is the fact that we adopted both of our girls. And it has really given a different kind of insight into being adopted by God uh, into his family. Um, Ephesians 1 is, has a verse that is, is one of my absolute favorites. It says that, we are that God has adopted us according to his pleasure and his will. And I can testify that with both of our girls' adoptions, and those of you who've been around, you remember those emails, those prayer updates, and you prayed hard for us. It was incredibly painful and very long, very difficult, and it took a whole lot of force of will to get through of it, and honestly, just plugging through, uh, desperately asking God to help us. But why did we do all that? Why did we stick with it? What well, was the pleasure? It was the delight of bringing these girls into our home, right? It wasn't because we were going to just force our way to get this adoption. It was because the delight in our children. According to his pleasure and his will, uh, I can still picture both, both of the times where we, we finalized the adoptions in Chicago in a courtroom and, uh, you know, afterwards we took pictures with the judge and, and all of that. Um, and the first time around, we, we didn't realize what was going to happen. A, a few weeks later, we get in the mail our daughter's U.S. birth certificate. And we open it up, and on the, the birth certificate, it says, birth father and birth mother. And it's my name. It's my wife's name. Under birth father and birth mother. That's what adoption means. Do you see that? that is, that's what's happened. Those, we were not a part of God and his family, and yet now it's as if we always were. It is we are home. We are, we're blood. This is what it means to be adopted by God. This is what it means to be a part of this family. Psalm 103 verse 4 says that God has redeemed your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion. Our first daughter, Anjali, when we brought her home, we were living in a, in a, in a, a house in India, 
And oftentimes you would rent out, like we, we had the ground floor and our landlords had the, had the, the top floor. And um, at the same time that, you know, we brought our daughter home, they had also brought a young boy from the village into their, their home. The difference was this. They brought him in as a slave. And I, I use that word as actually a slave. He could not leave. They did not pay him. They treated him horribly. And they used him to serve and cook and clean. He was probably eight years old. Now, compared to living a life in a brick kiln community, which is where his family was, you could make the case that they'd redeemed his life from the pit. I mean, he had a much better deal than he would have there. God redeems our life from the pit. But we crowned our daughter with love and compassion. She wasn't a servant. Like, our whole world turned in on this little person who showed up, and it, it was that she was everything. I mean, it was all about her. I would go out for weeks. I would, every time I left the house, I had to come home with something for our daughter, Anjali. Uh, she was like not even two, and I brought home a tricycle, and Ellen's like, what are you doing? She's never going to ride that. It's going to be like a year. I was like, I don't care. I had to bring something home because she's my daughter. That's what God has done. Man, that's what God has done. This is who we are. But shame, shame will keep us as servants. Shame will tell us that we don't deserve the love and compassion and will try to keep us as servants. Let me come to the end of our time here by, I want to read you a poem um, that has really helped express my own struggle of accepting being a son and not just being a servant. It feels easier to be a servant in God's house sometimes than, than to accept the status of being a son. So the, the title of the poem is called The Prodigal Servant, Not the Prodigal Son. Kneeling before the table... The guests file in and see and, and marvel at my devotion and acts of humility. Bowing before the master, serving at the feast, refusing the place of honor at the dinner to celebrate me. A dinner in celebration of a wretch, a drunk, a thief, no longer worthy to be called a son. My father welcomed me. He embraced me and my sin. This cannot be. He's testing me. I must prove my worth again. So I chain myself to the floor. My brother keeps the key. Approving of my chosen state, I deserve my servility. But my abject humiliation slaps my father in the face. He invites me to the table to feast upon his grace. He breaks my chains. I, I try to flee from his presence. He grabs hold of me and begins to sing of his delight his love, his pleasure over me, and turns to those who've come to dine and then begins to speak. This man is mine and mine alone. Who will contest my claim? He is no servant but my son, and I have given him my name. Get up, my son, and take your place. Sit down with us and feast. You've no more to prove. Take your rest. Come sit. You are released. There is a place at the table.
for you. It is a family table. It is not the kids' table at Thanksgiving in the other room. And you have a name card. It's reserved for you. It is a seat of honor. It is a seat that, that bestows love and goodness and compassion on you. You have a seat at the table. We don't have to be ashamed. We don't have to back off and say, no, 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 that's not for me. No, because Jesus says it is. And I've given everything so that you can sit here with me. And then we do that for one another. We call one another. We say, there's no way you're not coming. Let's go. You're my brother. You're my sister. And John kind of finishes up with some kind of weird things about what we're going to appear. And basically what I just say is this. He's like, don't worry about heaven in that day. We don't understand it all. But what counts is we're going to be with him. I can't wait for that. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old things will pass away, including shame. And he will make all things new. So my brothers and sisters, um, and you are my brothers and sisters, on this day uh, where we're thinking about fatherhood and freedom, it's incredible that we have a good, good father who has freed us from slavery and has invited us to the table. Love one another. Call the glory out. If I feel like as I was praying for this message, that was the thing he most wanted you to hear. Call that glory out in one another. Provide a place where shame can come forward and be healed. And then just enjoy the table. Let's pray. Father, we, we just say thank you. Um, we thank you that you have, you've done so much not to, not to make us servants. We, we do serve, Lord, but that's not who we are. You have made us sons and daughters of the Most High. You've given us honor and glory and I pray that you would help us to call that out in one another. I pray that shame would, would come out of hiding and be banished, oh God, and that we would find freedom and that we would be the people of God that you have called us to be unashamed with confidence coming before your throne in your presence and, and eager, eager to sit with you. Thank you, God, that you have done this for us. We, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you are able, I would invite you to stand.